those techniques of transformation involved things like uh, mantras and uh, certain ritual practices, fasting, asceticism, um, austerities. Uh, you know, you can see yogas to this day in India where they have their arms, one hand raised up and uh, keeping their arm raised for, you know, years upon years such that the muscles in their arms atrophy after a number of years and they can't actually bend it anymore. <laughs> it gets <laughs> set in that position. So that this notion of ascetic yoga, yoga based upon techniques and austerities, is challenged by the Sikhs by reinterpreting yoga as part of a worldly practice, being in the world and of being used to the world. Hi, I'm Sukrad Singh from Sikh Archive and welcome to the 48th episode of our podcast series of conversations with historians, authors, academics, researchers and activists on topics related to the areas of expertise on Sikh or Punjabi history. In this episode, we are joined by Balbindra Singh Bogal, who is a professor of religious studies and the holder of the chair in Sikh studies at Hofstra University. His research interests include decolonization, modernity, philosophy, yoga, and Sikh studies, to name but a few. And today we will be exploring the discussion on Sikhi and yoga, in particular, the Indic definition of yoga, its convergence to modernity, and its relationship to Sikhi from a critical perspective. So we begin by taking a close look at Sikhi during the Bhakti movement, Guru Nanak's relationship with his son, Sidchand, and close the discussion with an understanding of how to understand and interpret Kundalini Yoga. But before we start, a quick message about our sponsor of this episode from Sikh Student Learning, which is an educational resource that is developing a comprehensive Sikh Studies modular program for Sikh children aged between 4 to 16 years with the option to take exams for modules and obtain certificates of achievement. And right now they've published a new series of Gurmukhi Learning workbooks for those looking to learn how to read and write Punjabi. They are an excellent resource for new parents wanting to teach their children the culturally rich mother tongue that is Punjabi. You can find them at www.sixstudentlearning.co.uk. But now, back to the podcast that we have planned for you today. So normally we start the conversation with a, you know, who are you kind of question. But since you've already answered that before in our Sikhi and Buddhism episode, I guess listeners can, you know, learn from that, from listening into the first question. Unless, of course, some part of you has radically changed since then. <laughs> no. <laughs> just a little older. So let's just jump straight to it then and start by introducing the new book, namely the 2020 Rutledge Handbook of Yoga and Meditation Studies and your contributory chapter titled Sikhism, Yoga and Meditation. Yes, uh, thanks again for the invite to have a chat with you. I really enjoyed our last conversation about Sikhi and Buddhism. The chapter was titled um, Sikhism, Yoga and Meditation. And uh, basically what the editors 
were trying to uh, map out was that the fact that yoga is not just Hinduism. There's Buddhist yoga, there's Jain yoga, there's Sikh yoga, uh, and uh, it, there has many varieties. And so they wanted to have sort of like an overview of all the tradition's views of yoga. It just so happens that in the Sikh tradition, it's probably the only sustained and systematic critique of yoga, Indic yoga, pre-colonial times, pre-British times, where a, a, a foundational critique begins from, you know, the, the late 19th century. So before the British and the colonial encounter, you have an Indic reassessment and analysis of yoga that is found in the, the Sikh scripture, the Guru Granth Sahib. And so um, I was very happy to contribute to that book, not, not just in line with their mapping in terms of, okay, oh, yoga is sort of like a neutral topic and everybody, and there's sort of like a positivity about yoga. Um, it's not that often that you hear an Indic critique of yoga. You can hear a Christian critique of yoga, etc., especially in terms of the history, how it developed. So I was very happy to sort of like finally get onto the platform of such a scholarly uh, publication, uh, the Sikh voice of yoga and the Sikh perspective, which is on the one hand affirmative uh, of uh, certain aspects of yoga, uh, but it's also critical and analytical of that very inheritance and Indic expression of yoga. And can we begin by starting off with an Indic definition of yoga? How can we understand yoga from a decolonized standpoint? So this is, this is quite an interesting uh, trajectory that's now uh, birthed a new field called yoga studies. And it's sort of centered in uh, the London School, London University, the School of Oriental and African Studies, led by um, James Mallinson and, and uh, Mark Singleton. And they've been doing sort of like a history of yoga. So it's a revival in um, the study of yoga. But uh, what, what we know is that um, there's been very different definitions of yoga from different periods. Uh, so to summarize very complex and uh, contested history, we can say that uh, yoga begins in the end of the Vedic period. So the Vedas start around 1500 BCE and uh, towards around 700 BCE, you have the end of the Vedas, the Vedanta or the Upanishads. And in there, you start to get um, an internalization of the sacrificial ritual and understandings of the key sacrifices internal. And this internal sacrifice led to the notion of uh, discovering Brahman this uh, ultimate reality that doesn't just exist cosmologically, it also exists psychologically. In other words, it can be found within you as the essence of the universe. So everywhere that you look in the universe, you can find Brahman. And that you, something inside you, not your ego, but your Atman, can be connected to that. So the Upanishads, these, these um, around... 700-500 BCE start to explore this internal connection. So that started the notion of yoga as being something that you can connect to internally. I mean, there's many definitions. Uh, to unite is to do with um, the yoking of the cattle, uh, the chariots 
uh, of the warriors, they would ascend to the, the celestial realms and they'll be yoked to their chariot. So this uh, notion of being tied to and union was eventually reworked to express a uniting with Atman, with Brahman, a uniting your true self with the cosmic self, with the cosmic understanding. So that's one of the early definitions. Later, it starts to get developed. So it's psychological. And it's to do with an ascetic frame. A lot of uh, Buddhism and Jainism was active at this period from around the 500 BCE to around 200 CE, when you get Patanjali's Yoga Sutra, you get a, 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 a summary and a collection of these kinds of reflections. And so there's a lot of overlap between um, the Buddhist Eightfold Path and, say, the uh, Patanjali Yoga Sutra's Eight Limbs. And uh, in those eight limbs, if we just cover that quite quickly and briefly, you have um, Yama, Niyama, uh, asana, pranayama, and then uh, pratihara, dharana, uh, dhyana, and samadhi. So those eight limbs, what they go from is from a, a, the cleanliness and purification of a social being towards an internal being and the rituals of transformation internally. So mostly it's to do with as soon as you have asana, which is a seat, the seat is not an asanas as we think of today as exercises, but actually the posture that can be held such that the mind can come into view. In other words, a still posture. So that's what asana used to be, a meditational posture in which the body can comfortably be ignored and left so that through the breathing, which is interesting, how do you connect the body with the mind is through the breath. The bridge of the breath allows you a transformation from your physicality where there's problems with this um, temptations and the world and uh, attachments. Toward, through the bridge of the breath, pranayama, you can access the internal universe, the mind. And then all the other limbs, uh, pratyahara, with withdrawal from uh, the sensory world, withdrawal from your senses. So that's a key reversal. Normally, we think of the senses going out. You see, taste, touch. You want to go out. But yoga is a reversal, pratyahara. It reverses one's attention away from sensory objects. That's the lower mind, manas, towards the higher mind, which is buddhi. And that withdrawal starts to allow for meditation to occur, dhyana, and then eventually samadhi, this uh, mystical union. So that's a sort of like... Um, uh, an understanding, but there's something very important about Patanjali's Yoga Sutra that is often overlooked, and that is its goal isn't union. It is actually separation, kevalya, isolation of uh, prakriti and purusha. Now, this is a Samkhya philosophy of uh, a dualistic philosophy of two major foundational principles. Prakriti can be translated as uh, nature or manifestation, because in the Indic traditions, nature isn't to be reduced just to body. Nature is also mind. So we don't have the mind-body split as we do in the Western tradition. Both mind and body are prakriti. So that's a, a manifestation or materiality, let's say. The opposite to prakriti is purusha, which is also puruk, akal puruk, in terms of uh, the Sikh tradition. And that puruk, or that, that being, which is beyond prakriti, 
let's just say spirit, they got entangled. And yoga was the way to disentangle Prakriti from Purusha. We start to get um, deluded because we identify with what can be seen, heard, touched, measured, and named. Whereas Purusha is the unnameable, unseeable, untouchable. And so it is so easy, which is a constant problem throughout everybody's uh, history and uh, culturally and throughout Indian history as well, that we get attached with what we name. We get attached to our bodies. We get attached to a certain name, a culture, a people, a race, a gender. So we get entangled. Yoga was the way to become disentangled from that and become isolated, separate the principles of Purusha and Prakriti. Because who you really are is the witness, Purusha, consciousness, if you like. So that so there's two models in the early ancient and classical periods where you have the notion of union, uniting with Atman and Brahman, the psychological self with the cosmic self, and then also the separation of Purusha and Prakriti. In the medieval period, there's a certain transformation uh, where we have uh, uh, Hatha Yoga or Nath Yogis, where we have um, a notion of physical that is different to the modern period. In the medieval period, Nath Yogis were incredibly um, popular. Guru Nanak engages with them and the Siddhas. And... uh, this notion of yoga was to do with a tantric body or an esoteric body, to do with um, kundalini and uh, chakras and uh, uh, esoteric body. Now, that, that yoga is different from the ancient because we have a slight transition towards the world. Uh, so initial classical and ancient or yoga arises out of ascetic cultures. In other words, asceticism is the idea that um, the world is full of temptations and the only way to find the truth is to leave the world, renounce your job, your relations, live in the forest and become an ascetic. So that was the only way to find the truth, to find the cosmic self, Brahman, Atman, or to find the separation of Purusha and Prakriti. The only way you could do that was to leave the world. So Jainism, Buddhism, Hinduism, all had strong ascetic definition of religious praxis, and yoga was defined that way. Medieval period, with the Nath yogis, you get a slight turning towards the world. And this is to do with the third text, which is the Bhagavad Gita, and the Mahabharata, and the epics, where we have the Puranas beyond the Vedic literature. You have the more popular kinds of literature um, being produced. Whereas the Religion gets a turning to the world and bhakti, loving devotion, the ways of love, not just karma yoga, jhana yoga, yoga via actions or yoga via knowledge, but you also have bhakti yoga, yoga via love. And love was to do with relationships and being in the world. And so here here we have what I call the Indic Renaissance, where you have a whole group of people, Sufis, Sadhus, Siddhas, Sikhs, uh, bhaktas, all starting to realize that you don't have to leave the world to be a yogi. Yoga starts to get relocated within the world. And so it, there was a, 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 a medieval transition in which religious practice 
was being relocated from the forest to the householder's world. Uh, so that here we have a transition, and this is where Sikhism starts to come into play. And where does Sikhi start to come into that regarding the Renaissance period? Sikhi comes in um, very critical of all the yogins, the Hatha yogins, the Nath yogis. It, it's very critical, um, but it is part of a re-evaluation of yoga, jog, uh, in, in, in Sikh parlance. And um, whilst uh, the Sikh tradition is affirming jog, Indic jog, the notion of transcendence, the notion of getting beyond the entrapments of maya, getting beyond the entrapments of seductions in life, uh, in terms of... Um, uh, sensuality, greed, uh, avarice, etc. Getting beyond property, wealth, status, and um, uh, control. While Sikhs agree with that, there was an internal critique of these Indic traditions of yoga. Why? The main reason for critique was that the systems of transcendence that yoga led to were formulated into techniques techniques of transformation. Those techniques of transformation involved things like uh, mantras and uh, certain ritual practices, fasting, asceticism, um, austerities. Uh, you know, you can see yogas to this day in India where they have their arms, one hand raised up and uh, keeping the arm raised for, you know, years upon years such that the muscles in their arms atrophy after a number of years and they can't actually bend it anymore. <laughs> it gets set in that position. So that this notion of ascetic yoga, yoga based upon techniques and austerities, is challenged by the Sikhs by reinterpreting yoga as part of a worldly practice, being in the world and of being used to the world. And what specific expressions did that give rise to in Sikh traditions? The expressions this gave rise to within the Sikh tradition was uh, a double frame. And the, the double frame, uh, we can understand through two key terms, asan, which we already understand is seat, uh, meditational posture, and takat, because the Sikh form of yoga is raj jog i.e. the yoga of kings, or a royal yoga, or uh, a political yoga. So this brings into a notion of political religion or political mysticism. So let's just take each one individually. Asan is not the Sikh Asan, uh, is not to be confused with either the Upanishadic or Patanjali Yoga Sutras, Asan, where you formally sit, or the Buddhist or the Jain, where you formally sit in a meditational posture and you recite certain mantras or breathing or have certain techniques. The Sikh Asan is not that kind of Asan, but it um, agrees and affirms the necessity 
to transcend one's ego through meditation and through Simran, this remembering of the one or God's name and the Guru, the true Guru, Satguru. So, Asan is the notion of sovereignty over the mind, sovereignty over the ego. I like to translate home, the Sikh term for it, as I mind, the ego mind. And Asan symbolizes what the saint achieves, what the Gurmukh achieves. What the saint achieves is transcending the ego, decentering the ego, decentering the mind. And so that's a certain kind of finding the sovereign voice within you is not your voice. It's a voice that naturally occurs through you. Guru Nanak talks about that in terms of Turki Bani, that the Bani comes through him, through him and he speaks it as it is given. He's only able to do that because he has mastered or he has decentered the ego, Home. And in Sikhi, Home is opposed to Hukum. The Hukum. God's will or command or divine order or this, uh, the inscription of the name and word within the world. The inscription of the word within the world is hukum. So it's already speaking, it's already there. And that is contacted by losing the ego, dissenting the ego. Aap gavaye, aap mare are constant phrases throughout the the Guru Granth Sahib, uh, kill oneself, displace oneself, uh, dethrone the ego, uh, lose oneself, right? And so yoga here is as yoga in the Indic tradition is how do you lose yourself? How do you lose the ego mind? How do you get up beyond language? How do you get up beyond categories, naming, thinking? How do you give up, get beyond thinking? The first line of Patanjali's Yoga Sutra is Chittas Vritti Nirodha, Yoga is that which transcends the fluctuations of thought, thinking self. So this, this tradition is carried on and accepted within the Sikh tradition, um, but it is not a matter of techniques. It is not a mas- matter of mastery and performance of techniques. And we can, we can, I'll elaborate that point later. So whilst the Sikh tradition aligns with the Indic traditions in terms of what I've called an Indic Renaissance, the Siddhas, the Sants, the Sufis, the uh, Bhaktas, uh, the Sahijyas, all these groups start to practice religion within the world, practice yoga within the world. The Sikhs are different because they don't just stop with having religion within the world. They also master the second part, which is to do with Takat, so these are the two key words that I mentioned, asan, we've talked about that, and takat, the eternal throne. Uh, we can think of this in just popular imagery of the Harmandar Sahib, the golden temple, as the asan rep- representing spiritual transformation of the saint. But then opposite the Harmandar Sahib and it is the akal takat. So architecturally Sikhs embody this um, Raj Jog, um, and this is the political center, Takat, the, the uh, a socio-political conscience, not just a spiritual consciousness. So a spiritual consciousness of Asan and the social-political conscience of Takat 
are married in the Sikh tradition. And this is how Sikhi goes beyond bhakti. Because bhakti only allowed for spiritual transformation, not socio-political transformation. It left the hierarchies of caste and class in, in place and, and saw sort of like an apolitical religiosity. Whereas Sikhs, you have a political religiosity. And so we can talk about the Sikh critique of Indic yoga because it's not just asan, it's also takat, it's a raj jog, it's a yoga of kings. But saying that, how can a king do yoga? What does this uh, raj jog mean? So I think you're right to pick up on this because I need to further elaborate um, uh, what I call this Gursik enlightenment, which I think it's akin to European enlightenment. That's a big statement, I know. But I, I just want to sort of like try and elaborate that modernity didn't just happen in, in, in Europe and that there was an enlightenment in the Western sense of that term, not the Indic, that also occurred within the Indic context, and I think it manifests in the Sikh tradition, and the enlightenment is to do with the socio-political awareness. But before I can do that, I need to outline uh, what modernity means in uh, uh, the Indic context. So whilst you have Hinduism and uh, uh, Islam, uh, Islam entered India, you know, 7th and then 11th century and sort of grew in parallel with the Sikh tradition. And uh, so Sikhs were always under the umbrella of Mughal, Turco-Afghan and then Mughal rule. But both Hinduism and Islam had dualistic notions about power and authority. So the power of the state, the power of the ascetic and the power of civil religion were all separated both in Hinduism and in Islam. So Sufism, there's a critique of Sufis by Muslims. Um, uh, and it's a challenge to the authority of the ulema and the, um, uh, the Qazi. So uh, they have split domains. What happens with Sikhism is that duality where you have different legitimacy and different authority structures, both in Hinduism, the ascetic, yogi, and the, the Raj, the king, uh, and the Brahmin, they all uh, hold different authorities. But what happened with the Sikh tradition is that all three realms, the ascetic, the state, and a civil tradition, civil religion, all united in the figure of the Guru. So Sikhism mustn't be understood within the Hindu nomenclature of Guru, which is often apolitical. This is a notion of Guru that is a king, the Satcha Padsha, the true king. The gurus have always, right from the very beginning, uh, held court in the Darbar Sahib, in, in the Darbar, the court of the king. So this context of political yoga starts to transform the spiritual consciousness of asan into a socio-political uh, awareness of just governance i.e. Uh, a conscience, a socio-political conscience. And I think that's what um, is unique about the Sikh tradition, 
is that it's a sant sapahi, miri piri. It's to do with the union of uh, the saint and the soldier, the union of uh, yoga with not just porg, jogi porgi, yoga and being in the world and the pleasures of the world, but also raj, raj jog. And I think here we have, um, uh, how can it be that the guru can be sovereign, not just internally, but externally? And this is why I think uh, Sikh tradition has not just a renaissance, but an enlightenment of a, a, a just rule that we see with the notion of the Khalsa, the creation of the Khalsa, and um, uh, uh, the notion of plurality and pluriversal is crucial to understand um, the Sikh reinvention of yoga as Raj Jog that includes Asan and Takat. And how do we understand or make sense of the relationship between Guru Nanak and his son, Siri Chand, and begin to interpret the Udasi and Nirmalya Sikhs? You can see a certain kind of asceticism uh, prevalent uh, within the Sikh tradition because it was so pervasive, pervasive throughout the whole of India. Jog or yoga was a lingua franca that cut across all religious traditions and was something that was unavoidable. You couldn't avoid it. It was that uh, common. Um, so you would expect that in, within the Sikh tradition, you also have uh, Udasis and uh, Baba Shri Chand, uh, Guru Nanak's son, uh, being the founder of the Udasis and uh, uh, taking on yoga, uh, and etc. Now, how do the Sikhs respond to this? Well, the first thing to note is that Guru Nanak doesn't <laughs> enthrone uh, uh, Sri Chand as um, Guru Angad, the next Guru. So there's obviously a critique. And the critique is one that is not um, totally dismissive. Different people have different paths. and uh, But the Sikh path is to integrate spiritual consciousness with a socio-political conscience, asan with takat, sant sapahi, and who those within the tradition that only wanted to maintain mastery over the ego, but not commit them to a social-political project uh, of justice, weren't Sikhs, couldn't participate, and weren't given the ultimate authority. And I think that's the, a, a really important point. Uh, Guru uh, Amar Das summarized it really beautifully. Let me just find the quote. He says, um, Give your head and lose yourself. Sir Dije Aap Gavai. Now, Aap Gavai, so just with four words, he summarized what Sikh Raj Jog is. You have to not only up gavai, lose yourself, have mastery over uh, your ego, uh, ego loss, ego death, decentering the ego, subduing the ego. That's up gavai. That's com- absolutely necessary. That aligns with Indic yoga, etc. But then he says, Sir Dije, you have to give your head. 
Now, this is to do with the political, socio-political realm. You have to stand up and fight against injustice. So here we have um, a very strong internal self-understanding that goes throughout the Guru Granth Sahib and throughout Sikh tradition of um, uh, self-transcendence within the context of a socio-political conscience. And when did this change occur in yoga? When do we start to see the depoliticization of it and its convergence to modernity? We see the depoliticization of um, yoga, let's say, during Sikh yoga, Sikh Raj Jog, during the colonial encounter and the conversion to modernity. People often forget that modernity didn't just arrive and somehow we become modern. Modernity meant, for those that were colonized, westernization, Christianization, being forced into a modern world that is technologically advanced with print, canals, railways, roads, post office services. This is a wholesale transformation of the Punjab. Uh, these are new, brand new technologies, and we get transformed by those technologies. Subjectivity is transformed by the invention of new technologies. This is Marshall McLuhan's thesis of the uh, medium is the message. And um, it's long been known that we are transformed. Our internal lives are radically transformed by external technologies and inventions. And so, so it was with the Punjab. But we forget that we were therefore converted by those technologies. What were they? I mean, what was present at the time was a number of coercive vectors of capitalist power. What were those coercive vectors of power? Well, commodification, objectification, uh, the consumption, the consuming objects, commodities, uh, orientalism, this orientalizing forces, the creation of stereotypes, and the notion of autonomous individualism the autonomous individual that we get from uh, Europe. These are very powerful vectors of change in which instigated reform movements, the Singh Sabha reform movement, uh, 1870s and uh, 1950s. You get a, a, a redefinition of, of uh, the creation of Sikhism, as we talked in our last podcast. In that context, our conversion to modernity occurred along European lines of the erection of a nation-state. So the erection of a nation-state occurred through a huge fault line, partition, the violence of partition, and the separation of church and state. And um, these traumas had to meant that Indians had to reinvent themselves such that all religious practice was displaced, as it was in Europe, um, with the separation of church and state uh, authority. And so religion became depoliticized. Religion was to be understood as a subjective feeling that one can have but uh, keep to oneself. And so here we have uh, a problem with the Sikh tradition, if it's a tradition of Raj Jog, of uh, Asan and Takat, of Sant Sapahi, of Jogi uh, Pogi, etc. Now, what happened in modernity then was a splitting of Asan 
from Takat. Because now the state has absolute authority, not any individual group. And uh, so here we have um, the founding uh, problem that Sikhs have to this day of how to be a Sikh uh, because of that split. Uh, you, we can have the Harmandar side, but we can't have the Akal Takat. We can have the Sant, but we can't have the Sipahi. So now Sikh yoga starts to become uh, depoliticized. It becomes apolitical and is, starts to conform to those coerce, coercive vectors of capitalism and uh, modernism, such that religion is being displaced by secularism. Religion is being put into a secondary private position, not a public position of authority. And that split meant that uh, only those movements within the Sikh tradition that were arson, that were to do with uh, religion as privatized, were allowed to be. No political religious expression was allowed. And that, that uh, causes quite a lot of problems later on for various reasons. Um, and the modernized confusion that arises from this is that uh, certain groups that align with the Sikh tradition claim that Sikhs have yoga. But what they're claiming is this depoliticized form, i.e. a non-Sikh form, where it's just arson. It's just to do with a modern expression of apolitical religiosity in terms of going to your yoga studio and practice these yoga techniques or doing private religion. Sikhs have never believed in private religion because that splits love from justice. That splits spiritual consciousness from social conscience. We can see that uh, the, those forms that are apolitical get promoted and get aligned with the capitalist market. And so you can buy products and you can do things. But uh, the form that is Raj Jog is struggling to maintain itself within the modern context of nation states. And can I ask you about Midi-Bidi? Is that another analogy of what you have been describing so far? Yes, uh, this is from Persian and Islamic influence. Uh, Mir is the, uh, a commander, the one who rules a governance context. And Pir is the fakir, the, the Sufi, the, the saint. So this is totally in line with um, uh, Sant Sabahi. Again, the, the Sapahi is the, the political context of governance and rule. And Sant is the Peer, the Fakir, the Yogi, the one that transcends ego consciousness, decenters that. So yeah, Miri Piri is um, another expression. So you can see, in Sikh tradition, it is constantly trying to talk about not techniques of self-transformations, but a way to be in the world that expresses self-transcendence in the context of serving others. That's so crucial because we don't need anything to lose the self. 
One of the major critiques that the Sikh tradition has of yoga and yogis and siddhas and pagats uh, uh, is that um, you can have all these techniques, but what happens with techniques is that they are meant to transform your ego mind, but actually, after a while, the ego mind colonizes the technique such that it starts to say, I, I'm better than you because I have a technique of transformation. And the technique becomes the focus. What the technique was meant to do is forgotten. And then the buzz that you get from the technique is remembered. And so the buzz that you get is interpreted as some kind of spiritual growth when actually it's an inflation of your ego. So the Sikhs never aligned some kind of measure of uh, ecstasy, a, a buzz of a certain technique that's used because that's just a, a where your ego can also be addicted and attached to. What is required, the gurus said, say, is that um, the loss of the ego. You don't need a technique for that to lose the ego. You just need to live for others, start to serve others. So Simran, Asan, and Seva, Takt. This notion of Simran, Seva, Langar, the combination of the two is what I would call a renewed Buddhist middle way. So we have the Sangha, the Buddhist Sangha, but it's in the context of an ascetic framing of the past where uh, religion is to do with leaving the world. But that Sangha gets transformed into Sangat and now it's in the world. And here we have what you could say is like engaged Buddhism, if you like, of Thich Nhat Hanh. And that engaging of Buddhism is along the lines of a way. There's no special technique. Now, why is that the case? One of the key terms that is Indic and across religious traditions is Sahaj. Now, Sahaj is, can be translated as natural, easy, effortless, spontaneous, beatific, mystical, right? Now, this Sahaj term starts to get applied to the way Sikhs engage in the world which is to be natural in the world. Now, why do we need to be natural and what has Simran got to do with this? One's orientation in the world is already imbued with the inscription of the word in the world. The inscription of the word in the world is hukum. So God's laws, God's commands are already written in the world. What one needs to do to get in touch with that is not a technique, is to stop and pause and listen. This is why the Japji starts with sunye, 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 lage, sahaj, dhyan. Through listening, one enters the deepest meditative absorption effortlessly, naturally. So in Sikhism, yoga is primordial or Sahaj is primordial before techniques arise. Techniques are irrelevant. What is required is our acknowledging of the word in the world by losing the ego mind. And there's nothing required to lose your ego. All you have to do is to think of others 
love others. To be kind, you don't need a technique to be kind. To be compassionate, you don't need a technique to be compassionate. Uh, to be loving, what techniques could you sell to be loving? And here we have the foundational critique of um, the whole of Indic yoga, which becomes mantra rather than shabat, mantra rather than shabat. Shabat is to do with the word being already written in our bodies. We have to pause and listen to that. Simran is a remembering of the word in the world as it is already happening. So therefore, it's to do with our everydayness, our everyday events, and how we engage with at all levels. So the everyday is the ashram. All the places where you go, your everyday actions naturally, the natural world that you live in, is the arena in which Sikh Jog occurs. It's not in a gym or a studio or the Gurdwara. Gurdwara means the door of the Guru, and the door of the Guru is everywhere. Actually, the door of the Guru in other hymns is said to be pain. That's the door, pain. And wh why? Because the ego is a psychological, emotional structure that always prioritizes pleasure over pain. So as long as we are instrumental, which is what egoism is, always to think for yourself and, for, and be for yourself first, this pleasure over pain means that we always miss the Guru, Gurdwara, the Guru's door. Guru Nanak says he meets, he, it's very rare for him to meet a person that emphasizes pain over pleasure because then they're facing the necessity to undo the ego ego's way of living in the world, which is for itself, at the expense of others, rather than Simran, which is to remember others as oneself. And that requires acknowledging everybody's in pain, everybody's suffering. So duk. So here, here is a, a, a notion of sick jog that cannot become a technique. This reversal has to be instigated by your conscience by realizing that you're connected to a social fabric and responsibilities. You can't uh, have techniques to make you more loving, kind, compassionate, giving, etc. So it's a mode of living in the world that already acknowledges the Guru is speaking to us. But to hear that, the Gurus say, you have to lose your ego. And how do we, from everything you've explained so far, understand and begin to interpret Kundalini Yoga? from a sick lens? Great question. And it's an important question and one that needs to be debated and discussed and uh, understood. So Kundalini Yoga is a form of, uh, let's say, violence, which produces certain kinds of results. Uh, but this isn't Sikhi. So whether or not Kundalini Yoga is good or bad, we can put to the side. But from the sick context, what it starts to do, it becomes an arena for the ego to claim authority and a power by owning certain techniques, property, and saying, look, I'm, I'm a better person than you because I do, you know, three hours of meditation or uh, this fast breathing or whatever it is that suddenly you, it, what it does, it just uh, massages your ego. So you have what uh, Chogyam Trungpa said in the 60s countercultural movement and saw how the West was understanding Tibetan 
uh, Buddhism was spiritual materialism. That spiritual teachings can become materialistically understood, <laughs> a part of a consumption. And uh, so uh, that's what we see with many forms of yoga that start to make the technique the thing rather than the maturing of the individual conscience. Having the buzzing in your consciousness, having these uh, great experiences, just inflate the ego. This is why Das, Gobind Das, uh, the, the, the notion of servant, slave, become a slave to the dust of the saints' feet, right? To become a, of service to others. The number one thing is to lose your ego, to humble yourself. Now, people don't understand that becoming hum humble is a new epistemic mode of being. In other words, humility reveals knowledge. It's not as like hum becoming humble, you just become passive and you just accept everybody else's way. No, becoming a das reveals new insights, a new knowledge. You start to understand beyond the ego. And those understandings, intuitions that come to you from serving others and loving others is to do with um, respecting the diversity of uh, God's creation and it's uh, uh, the necessity to accept diverse viewpoints and uh, 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 traditions. Now, you could say Kundalini is just another tradition in Sikhi. Why isn't Sikhi tolerant to those kinds of notions? Because the only thing that seeks the Sikh scripture challenges is that which is ego inflating, home. Because home, if the ego voice is your only voice, then hukam can't be heard. So this is why uh, in Japji, it starts with that, right? The only way to hear uh, hukam is for home to be subdued. So that's the problem with techniques. And that's why the Sikh jog is a praxis of the word, which is in the world already, before any techniques. It's your body speaking to your mind, if you like, rather than um, a, a technique that uh, can be used by the ego. So all the religious traditions can still flourish and do how they do what they do, the aim for all of them must be a humbling of the ego. So here we have a difference between the universal and the pluriversal. The universal is often understood from the West as discovering a universal law. But what happens is that one language, one people gets to name the universal and enforce it upon others. <laughs> um, that's a, a top-down notion of the universal. Christianity spreading the good news around the world and causing a genocide or conversion, etc. Right? So this notion of we have the truth, it's been revealed in this language only, and everybody else has to have it. This is a false, this is seen through by Guru Nanak. So rather than universal, he has a notion of the pluriversal, which is to, to do with asank, anek, which is ek anek, the one within the many, the one within the plural. But the plural is not defined from top down, the universal. The plural is defined from the bottom up. And this is why he travels 
and connects with all the di- and why his vocabulary is so rich. He starts to use tantric vocabulary of Shiv Shakti, of Dasandwar, of Sun Samad, as well as uh, Vaishnava and Shaivite vac- uh, uh, vocabulary of Bhakti, Hari, Ram, as well as Abrahamic notions of Allah, Kuddha. Uh, so he has personal notions of God aligned with impersonal notions like Nirvan, uh, Nirvana uh, of Buddhism together. Now, how can he have this blatant contradiction together, impersonal absolute with a personal absolute? He can have it together because he acknowledges through humility the ultimate is vismad, is an unnameable mystery. And all of us have our own legitimate vocabularies to speak of that oneness through our many vocabularies. But we have to have not a universal voice, which uh, lords reason or divine languages. Buddhism and Sikhism reject divine languages and reject logic as an ultimate principle. What we have to have is humility and love, which allows for the pluriversal to arise. The pluriversal is bottom up. Therefore, the Sikhs include the voice of the other within the Guru Granth Sahib, Sheikh, Bikan, Farid, Sufis within the Guru Granth Sahib, as well as uh, Hindu saints. Uh, so the voice of the other is right from the very beginning included within Sikhi. And this is the notion of a political conscience aligned with the spiritual consciousness that we have to learn how to live in the world together and diversity is a way to understand the immense gifts that this uh, creation has. There's no wrong culture. There's no wrong language. All languages can express kindness, love, compassion, justice. So Sikhi has a much, Sikhi, you could say, has a modernity yet to come. Sikhi's notion of a double enlightenment, the enlightenment in the Western sense of a socio-political conscience, as well as the enlightenment in the Indic sense of spiritual transformation in one's consciousness. That double enlightenment is what I would name as a new modernity, a modernity yet to come, where every being has legitimate authority to be different, to be as they are in their organic difference. Multiple languages, multiple traditions are allowed in this. So here we have a a very beautiful expression of a new man, a new human, a new being, where each one of us has the sovereignty to speak through our difference, but in respect of others. There has to be acknowledgement uh, of the other's legitimate way of being in the world that is different to one's. But the only way that can arise is through an epistemic revolution that humility can bestow. And just on this idea of ego claiming authority and power, doesn't the act of Simran and Seva itself also become a risk of becoming a method of pleasing the ego? These are excellent and very important questions So let me see if I can go through uh, some kind of answer to them. 
What do Sikhs do if um, uh, Seva and Simran become forms of technique that they start to get attached to and become ego massaging rather than ego displacing, which can happen and has happened and does happen all the time. So Sikhs aren't immune to owning their religion, to making their religion a property, to making their religion a set of techniques and rituals. Every tradition has this issue. We can get a massive ego inflation through this process and hugely defensive such that the discussion with, let's say, how do we understand yoga and Sikhi is, is defensive and saying, oh, there's no yoga in the Guru Granth Sahib and they dismiss it. When actually, it's full of yoga. It's full of yoga. But it's, it, it, it recontextualizes yoga. So we need to reflect about the meanings of the Guru Granth Sahib and the tradition so that we can actually accept yoga, yoga in a qualified way. As we talked about, we need to have transcendence of the ego. And yoga has, particularly in ancient classical medieval times, been involved with that very project. But we can't just have the transcendence of the ego as what Sikhi is. It's also the, the political conscience that we've been talking about. So um, how do we do that? How do we relate to that? Well, we have to shift from the notion that one group has the truth to a pluriversal context in which everybody has the truth, but it's hidden and it needs to be recovered. The Muslim doesn't convert to Sikhism to get the truth. The Hindu doesn't convert to Sikhism to get the truth. Guru Nanak says you have to become a true Brahmin, a true yogi, a true Muslim. What does that mean to become a true Brahmin, a true yogi, and a true Muslim? means that the truth is already there in languages, in the everyday, in all the diversity, but it's hidden. And the way to connect with it is to understand that the word in the world demands constant creativity. It is not a property to be owned as an heirloom, such that it becomes an ideological club to hit over the heads of others. We have the truth. The word in the world is uh, necessitates constant creativity. It has to be rediscovered, re-expressed, renewed. So the Guru Granth Sahib could have been one page, and just stop there. <laughs> uh, but it doesn't. It goes on for 1,430 pages. And it could have gone on forever and ever. Because what it's trying to say is that um, the mode of Sikh Jog, Raj Jog, Sahaj Jog, is to do with a natural, spontaneous creativity that arises once the ego is subdued. We're naturally creative beings. A Juni Sebang, the Sikh Mool Mantar, expresses a state of being in the world that's creative, self-illuminating, fearless, hateless. This is the Puruk, Akal Puruk. In the Sikh scripture, it talks about God, the creator, is in the creation and the creation is in the creator. Already. It's already given. This is the Sahaj. To become natural, therefore, is the most revolutionary act. And Sikhi is designed to do that. But because we've got westernized, modern, individual subjectivity that has got trained into naming, owning, and controlling, it's very easy to miss. In fact, it's at every single period, not just modernity, 
ego naming, we get addicted by our own namings by, and get deluded thereby. So this deconstructive force within the Sikh tradition has been forgotten by Sikhs themselves, you could argue, mostly, because they've been reformed into Sikhism and they've got a property and a place and this is a practice and this is what Sikhs do, this is what Hindus do, this is what Muslims do. And Guru Nanak's pluriversal vision and his journey, his Udasis, have been forgotten. The necessity, necessity to go beyond oneself to the other as a matter of learning as a matter of creative expression, re-articulation. The practice of Sikh Jog, Raj Jog, Sahaj Jog, Gurmukh Jog is precisely to do with the connection of the other on the level of humble learning. What do Sikhs do? Practice self-awareness to the extent that the e they are able to control their ego, but also be living in the world in such a way that you're open to diverse views as a necessity, as an essential aspect. Go beyond your own language to connect to other languages. Go beyond your own tradition to connect to other traditions is a necessity to understand the pluriversal truth, which was a resonant truth across traditions that Guru Nanak was talking about. Ik onkar as ek an ek. We have to respect the diversity of the world and uh, remind others that um, no one has a monopoly on truth. And one question I had was on this idea of Gur Shabbat Kamai. I was wondering if you could elaborate a little bit more on that. Great question, uh, Gur Shabbat Kamaya. Uh, how do you practice this uh, word? How do you connect with the word? We already know is to decenter the ego. How do you do that? Through connecting with your body, the affective being. Feeling is the highest knowledge in this regard. And Simran, Seva, Kirtan, Katha, the singing is a mode to enter the feeling body, the affective body. In the body, the word is already written and then you can start to feel it. Speak in your mind, not think it through a technique. So it's to become embodied. So Sikhism is to do with the event of our everyday through embodiment, uh, not an abstraction in a mind and an ideology and a philosophy. It, that's why Sikhs are so hospitable. They can, their traditions hold a mode of living in the world that connects with bodies. Sikhi is all about the absolute treasure that the body is. And it should be respected, the diversity of creation. Nirgun Sargon is another vocabulary we haven't mentioned, but we can talk about it in those terms of the formless and the formed. But I just wanted to go back to sort of elaborate this point of Gur Shabbat Kamai. How do you practice the illumination connecting with the word? Well, the Guru, the word, and the name are sort of fungible terms. They can be interchanged with each other, and they constantly are within the Guru Granth Sahib. And what they all denote, if the Guru and the Word are not particular experiences, but the very ground of experience itself, then any experience may trigger that connection. Any moment in your life, in your everyday mode of being, can trigger an awareness that is affective, that connects you to the feelings that go beyond your individual likes and dislikes. 
So the everyday is something that's unnameable. We're constantly misnaming the everyday event of life, which is actually the word. Our misnaming creates a world of our own projections. So the inherent deconstructive force throughout the Guru Granth Sahib occurs because it wants to disrupt our namings to return to the unnamed, which is the name. The naming is that which can't be captured. Uh, In the article, I try to summarize it by saying that um, the inherent deconstructive existential nature of the name as the nameless, the word as the unsystematizable, and the guru as the everywhere there but hidden, will not allow such a reduction to technique that modernity's individualism demands. So our orientation to making the world visible to our mind is by listening to our bodies and the bodies of others. So you say Sikhi is of the everyday, where normal life is the arena of Sikh Jog. But doesn't yoga release you from the everyday concerns of life? Isn't yoga an escape from the everyday? To answer this perceptive question, I have to talk about um, temporality and creativity. We have to connect the discourse of creativity with risk-taking and how the ego, home, is risk-averse. It's constantly seeking safety and um, self-protection, ego protection, to keep itself in existence. Therefore, the ego is inherently risk-averse, and so is uncreative. It is repetitive. It repeats its structures of uh, pleasure and tries to maintain them in the face of um, uh, a temporality uh, that is always changing. The world changes and uh, that denies the problem-free repetition of that pleasure. Yet the ego persists, therefore we have to link the constant necessity of creative being with the risk-taking that is a challenge to the ego's stubborn habits, which cause such suffering. Actually, this is the discourse of, of tyrants. Dictators have always used the umbrella of safety and uh, protection coupled with an externally projected threat to one's safety. We can see that in the past as we can see it now, today. As a maintenance of one's land, language, people, ethnic identity. So I think there is a very important coupling that needs to be acknowledged within Sikhi. That is that the the creator, Akal Puruk, is not something but a creative being becoming. And that creative being... Uh, reflects that the creator is in the creation uh, as a risk taker, as a problem solver, as a challenger of all the man-made untruths, falsehood, deceptions that are being played on people through language and uh, through identity politics. And this creative being becoming unveils the heart of Sikhi as a dynamic temporality being in time in such a way that the ego cannot formulate. I free time, like in um, deep sleep or in ecstatic dance, 
or, or, or in Simran, in continual remembrance of that being becoming. These show time without I is Sahaj, and Sahaj is therefore necessarily fearless, hateless, spontaneous, and creative. There isn't an ego there to do the fearing and hating. That's why the Mul Mantra opens the Guru Granth Sahib. It is talking about a primordial state we have forgotten. But to become fearless is obviously um, a challenge to the ego structures to maintain safe patterns, its uh, habituations of uh, safeguarding its living. This sick jog, therefore, is fearless becoming in time without I. This is why Raj Jog, Sahaj Jog, Gurmukh Jog is unlike um, modern yoga, which is the maintenance of the ego's buzz in time, in an attempt to master time, that is, master mortality, rather than flow in time as time. Not a being in time, which is the ego mind, but being as time, which is the body. Hence, the importance of getting out of the abstractions of the mind or cultural self and getting into the river of the animal body self. You know, when um, Heraclitus says you cannot step into the same river twice, he reveals an imminent creative dynamism at play. Ego mind does not wear time well. You know, with any sort of dignity, just think of plastic surgery. Uh, but the body does. The body rather is time with immeasurable intelligence to marshal. Immeasurable intelligence to marshal resources, transact chemical transformations, uh, break down sugars, proteins, eliminate toxins, etc. The body is a garden that is ever blossoming, ever being renewed. This is what the Guru Granth Sahib argues, Sahib Mera Nitanava, Sada Sada Dataru, that the, the, the creator in the creation and the creation in the Creator is an ever-blossoming, an ever-renewing. But how does that differ from classical yoga that you mentioned earlier in the Upanishads and Patanjali Yoga Sutra? So here we have a key difference between Hinduism, Hindu yoga, if you like, of escaping the body uh, to unite Atman with Brahman or disentangle Purusha from Prakriti, and Sikhism and, say, Buddhism, which are anti-philosophies that actually reintegrate the I-mind, the ego-mind, back into the mortality of the body-self. So his jog, then, is a force against Maya, which is always linguistic and cultural, and is in that regard against any form of identity politics, ownership and uh, protection of some kind of stability and structure. It is inherently dynamic, because it has to be inherently creative. Life doesn't stop in one formulation with the assumption that, oh, now we have it. No, life, life cannot be had. It is a, a continually, perpetually self-adapting process. Life is the flow of a river that constantly changes. Gurmukh Jog, um, Sahaj Jog, is in alignment with the flow of the river as oneself. As um, it is stated in Buddhism, the Buddhists have the notion of the five khandas as the self. Uh, there are far five parts to the self, form, feeling, perce perceptions, karmic formations, and consciousness. 
all of these constantly change and form in new patterns. And that flow of being as becoming is, I, I'm arguing, inherently creative. That's the organic intelligence of life itself. That is, that is hukum. Hukum is the inherent organic intelligence of life's incalculable operations and laws. So Hez Jog is an alignment with that organic, natural, effortless, spontaneous intelligence that is life. Furthermore, it is um, fearless and hateless because it doesn't have an ego to protect. In Sikhi, then, Raj Jog's en enlightenment is more of an enlivening, a perpetually unfolding process than a single event of awakening. But if all life is part of this flow, how do we begin to understand politics and rule over other bodies and lives? This is a complex topic, <laughs> and that relates to a notion of sovereignty that I can only um, briefly outline here. Sahaj Jog, unlike other forms of yoga, is a form of sovereign becoming, not just over one's inner being, asan, but reflects the sovereignty of all beings and all lives. All these lives very clearly share in that same infinitely creative process of enlivening. All forms of life, all, all forms are sargun, and they have the hidden sovereignty of nirgun residing within them. And this... Um, Gurmukh Jog, Sahaj Jog, expresses the sovereignty of life as an inherent, irreplaceable wonder and value, one with which um, we should be in constant contact. And that would instigate a relationship with the Satguru. There is knowledge inherent in these, this network of perpetual renewing and becoming. That idea that you give up your own sovereign rights for the protection of the group or, or um, that one people are sovereign over others who are presumed subhuman or inferior in some way is a European Christian idea of um, manipulation and control that actually the Khalsa stood against. The Khalsa symbolized the true sovereignty of the downtrodden, the oppressed of all peoples as inherently sovereign. All Western notions of sovereignty are tied to Carl Schmitt's um, thesis that assumes there is always friend and enemy. Therefore, you have to protect yourself against the external threat of that enemy, which is always assumed to exist. But the Sikh gurus um, in their scripture and the tradition in the literature reiterates again and again that you will be stuck in Maya You'll be stuck in the illusion, the deception, so long as you believe that assumption of the friend-enemy duality, you know, as some kind of um, absolute truth that always exists. Only when you transcend the barriers of self and other, friend and enemy, do we get the beginnings of Sahaj Jog. And that uh, transcending, that beginning is possible. There's something beyond friend and enemy. And this is why Sahaj Jog talks about uh, the, the sovereignty of life, of all forms, as opposed to the promotion and preference of one people, um, one yoga over another, one religion over another, as the correct, uh, pure, true form. 
Life occurs in diverse forms and all of it is sacred, all of it is sovereign. Sahez Jog um, cannot be formulated, therefore, just like life cannot be formulated. It's a constant creative process that escapes our naming. But we can shift from thinking to perceiving and consciously participate in that fearless, hateless, spontaneous, natural becoming that is inherently intelligent and revealing. That is, I mean, Sahaj Jog begins with listening to one's own feeling body and then extends to every other feeling, sensing body as the revelation of the word in the world. Well, thank you so much, Professor G, for coming on to explain the historical timeline and understanding of yoga, philosophy and tradition from a decolonized perspective, and also on how that was encountered and critiqued by Sikhi. I think this episode was really important so that we can begin to understand the relationship Sikhi has with yoga and how we can understand that philosophy that underpins it. So I'm really happy we were able to have this conversation and I look forward to hosting a third episode in the future. So thanks again. And last but not least, I would like to thank our sponsor, Six Student Learning, and the tens of thousands of followers across our social media channels that continue to motivate us to actively record and share Sikh history. We hope to continue to keep recording more podcasts and make more Sikh history accessible in audio format. So if you enjoyed this episode and would like to hear more, please share with others so that we can attract more supporters that in turn help us to generate more episodes. Thank you. Thank you.